you're visiting with us, we began a series in John actually a year ago this Advent, the first chapter we did during Advent uh, last year, and we've been in it during this year, and we will uh, actually finish this uh, amazing gospel up uh, right after Easter uh, this year. So we, we left off with uh, what many have called uh, uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, some have said this is more rightly the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the other prayer we call the Lord's Prayer was a, a sample he gave to us. But what, what is so really stunning about this passage is that, that we are in a sense have the privilege of eavesdropping as Jesus is moving ever so quickly toward the cross. It's in the horizon. These are the last hours, really, of his life. And here we have recorded him speaking to his father, but then God saw fit to preserve this for us so we would learn even, even more of him. So uh, we read earlier the first few verses of this prayer, and we'll pick up with the, the sixth verse. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they're yours. All mine are, your, are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm, I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in, in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, how beautiful are the words of Jesus to you, O Father. And you let us, you let us hear them. And so you have a reason. And it, it's more than just being amazed by this. You... You want to grow us. And so we would ask for that in these next few moments, even as we move toward this beautiful table set before us. We would pray that you would teach us, that we would, even in these moments, love you more, even than we do right now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right after Christmas, I heard from a young man that I uh, knew from a previous church. And I'm going to keep his name and and identity confidential. But there's a reason I want to share with you what he said to me. And by the way, if anyone from, from those churches are listening, they wouldn't be able to figure out who it is. He said this. Again, think about this. It's right after Christmas. He said, I feel I've lost my faith. I don't consider myself an atheist, but I no longer consider myself to be a true Christian either. I want to believe, but I can't seem to convince myself that God is real. I consider myself to be a hopeful agnostic at this point, but I'm not sure where to go from here. I want to truly believe, but I'm honestly not sure how to do that. I feel like I need to convince myself, but I don't know how. Now the reason I'm sharing that is because I am convinced that there are a lot of people right exactly where he is. Some would say it out loud. This took great courage for him to um, approach me. Some would say it out loud. Others would, would keep it hidden down deep 
thinking those things all the while, but too afraid to say them out loud? What would other people think? What would my family think? Who would I disappoint? Those kinds of thoughts. And yet, even this passage before us, the way Jesus prays for his disciples and for us, addresses some of the very things that my young friend is dealing with. I want to share with you a few of the things that I shared with him as well. The first thing I told him was, was this. It's not at all unusual for true believers to have what I would call a crisis of faith and even feel like they've lost their faith. As I have read biographies and autobiographies of many of what we would call the great Christians that have gone before us, Many of them have had those very crises. You are not alone. As we look at this passage, what we're going to see in, in this portion of the prayer, I believe, is uh, we're going to learn some more about the world we live in and then we're going to learn more about uh, what, what it is to be a believer and, and more about believers themselves. And then we're going to learn more about Christ himself, even as he was speaking to his Father on behalf and praying, especially in this section, for his disciples and although he was praying specifically for them, and in the next section, it, it, it may be exactly praying for us and those that were to come, I'm convinced that, that what he is praying for them applies as well to us as his, as his disciples. So, first of all, let's look at what we learn about our world now, I'm using the word world here to denote the people that live in the world as opposed to the physical world itself, the, the globe or the planet itself. Um, look, at, look at what we can learn about the world we live in from what he says. First of all, uh, look at verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. What we see is that the, the unbelieving world is looked at by God differently than believers. Get it here? The unbelieving world is looked at by God differently than he looks at believers. There's no question that, that God has a general love for the world. We see that in the Scripture itself. There is a common grace that he pours out upon uh, the, the world that we live in and believers and unbelievers alike. 
but it is obvious here through his intercession that he is praying even more specifically for his people. Now, if you're one of his people, take comfort in that. He is praying more specifically for you, for us, for those that are trusting in Christ alone for their eternal life, even then he's praying for this world that he tells us elsewhere he loves. Now the next thing we learn about the world is that that one can live in the world but not be identified with it. Look at verse 14, and then we'll look at 16, which uh, repeats this. He says this in verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do you get the emphasis, I guess? Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what's, what's, what's the point? What's he saying here? What do we need to take away from this? Well, in terms of Jesus, he never was of the world. We were before Christ. But even though he, in his incarnation, Uh, took on flesh, he was fully human, he lived among us, and he experienced all the things in the world that we do. The one exception that he did not experience is he did not sin. That's why he was not of the world. And that's the sense that we are not to be of the world either. Even though we live in the world, there's a difference. And back to our point, one can live in the world but not be identified with it. So how much was uh, uh, Jesus in the world? Well, he acknowledges accusations that, that were made of him. Uh, you can see this in Matthew 11 and and. Uh, Luke as well. Uh, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus was able to be among the people of the world somehow, but not participate in their sin. Now you might say, well, that's great. That means there's no restraints on me either. Well, wait a minute now. Let's remember, this was Jesus. And Jesus, well, let me just say it out loud. He had more self-control than you do. He had more self-control than I do as well. So we need to always take care. I've, I've seen this verse used by 
by people to say, yeah, I can, I can go out and, and do exactly what everybody else is doing because that's what they thought about Jesus and he must have been and, and so on. No, there was some way that he was able to be among, really, really out in the world without, without taking part when, when their activities crossed over into sin. And, and that... That's where we need to be as well. That's really <coughs> what he's praying for. But we need, to, we need to be cautious. Don't use this in the wrong way. Cautious in the sense that, that it's easy for, for us. The, the temptation is for us to, to be out with, even, maybe even with good, great intentions of being among those who really need Christ but not being able to stop at the line when it becomes sin. And so that's, that's the caution with this. And that's really what he's praying for here. Protection from the evil one. But he's saying there is a way to live in this world, but not participate fully in it. And that leads us to the next thing we, we see about the world and, and the, the problem it leads to, and that is that this world will be hostile to unbelievers. Verse 14, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. It's, it's like having a, a citizenship in, in two worlds. This is how one commentator put it. This mixed citizenship engenders the world's hatred towards us. See, here's what happens. You know, some, the pendulum can swing with these things. For some believers, they came out of a, a lifestyle like that, and so, so they want to be as far away from, from uh, those kind of people that they, they partied with, they, they did all kinds of sin with, they knew they were doing uh, wrong things, at least looking back on it before they were in Christ. And so they want to get as far away. Well, that's one way. And when you, when you do that, when you totally separate yourself from the world we live in, the world hates you for that. And then there are others that, that try to um, get as close as possible, as close to the edge as possible, to relate to them and so on. And then when they put the brakes on and don't participate fully, then the world's going to hate you for that too. And that's what Jesus dealt with. Why should we think it would be any different for us? But we need to note this along with that. There is a purpose for our being in the world. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He would never have done that if there weren't uh, a purpose, uh, an important purpose for us to be there. So uh, Jesus came to provide for our salvation, and our purpose is to tell others about how he came and provided for our salvation to be salt and light. Martin Luther said that our faith is to be a profane faith. Now, 
let me define that word. He lived in another day and age. He's not saying uh, when he uses the word profane, yeah, it's where we get the word profanity, but it doesn't mean that's how we relate to the world. When he says profane, the word profane uh, in, in his day literally means out of the temple, something outside of the temple. Anything inside the temple was holy. That which was outside the temple was profane. And Luther is rightfully saying that, that we can't just pull up our skirts and come inside where it's comfortable in here and be in our, what some have called a holy huddle, where it's, it's safe, or at least we think it is. It's safe in here and out there's the enemy. It's not the right, right way to look at it. Of course, there's times for us to come in and, and be renewed, just like what we're doing right now. It's easier, and it should be more comfortable here. Let me read to you from Vision 2022. Here's what we say about our church. St. Andrew's is an outward-looking church. We will creatively use all kinds of opportunities to introduce people to Christ by building bridges to our community. All bridges should be conscientiously two-way for our members to go to the community and for our community to come into St. Andrews. Draw bridges are not an option. So here's... Here's what we're saying in our, our vision statement is um, it, it's not for us to run in across the bridge like people are chasing us and then pull the bridge up and them not be able to get here because there's a moat around us and we can all hug and, and enjoy one another. But instead, we don't just put a bridge down we build a bridge, and it stays. And it's a bridge where, where we go out and, and others come in. That's the idea. And then we go on to talk about the, the, the purpose of the bridges. Our bridges should always be a positive thing for our community. Our desire is to bring shalom to our community, to make it better, more beautiful in multiple ways, more peaceful and bring joy. And we've already defined those things as being, being wrapped up in the gospel. The second thing we learn in this passage is about ourselves if we're believers. First, it's defined in verse 8. Verse 8, um, basically that you're a believer if you receive and believe his word. Verse uh, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now, I hope this verse is a comfort to, to many of you, and especially if you find yourself kind of struggling in your faith. And you may say, well, why would that be a comfort? Let me explain. Jesus is saying here to his father, 
my disciples, they get it. They really, really believe who I am and why I'm here and who you are and our relationship with one another. Now, why should that be a comfort? Well, think about his disciples. They, they have struggled mightily. In fact, right after this, they're going to run away. They're going to deny him. And yet, and he knows that. He's already told them they're going to do that. And yet he says, they get it. They're real believers. So here's where the comfort should come. Belief is not about our perfection, but about His perfection. That's, that's where the comfort is. So sometimes when we look at our own faith and we know how weak we are or how wavering we are, we might think, am I even a Christian? Now, it's never wrong to ask that question. But there are reasons to say, if, if, certainly if we're trusting in Christ, that it can't be based on how perfect my faith is. Another thing we learn about believers, and that is believers belong to God. Verse 9, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 6, says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. If we're not our own, here he says, who we belong to. We belong to the Father, the Son, and we're held by the Holy Spirit. The price was a high price of Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, and so that's why we who believe belong to Him. And then we also learn, in terms of believers, that our purpose is to bring glory to God. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am, verse 10, and I am glorified in them. Now, we read earlier uh, in our worship the first few shorter catechism questions and answers. The very first one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So people he bought with a price, the imperfect believers in Christ, still bring him glory. Our imperfection doesn't diminish his glory. It just shows what a great God he is, that he is glorified even by imperfect followers. And then in verse 11, it speaks of unity, that unity should be a characteristic of God's people. 
for I'm no longer in the world, and uh, verse 11, and they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, I'm actually going to, we're going to skip over this, because we're going to come back to this next week, because the latter part of his prayer really focuses upon this, this unity that he is praying for. So we will, we will be back to this, but, but I, I want to share as well what we learn about believers, and that is we are safe when we're guarded by him. We are safe when we're guarded by him. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. You hear that? I kept them. Uh, which you've given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let me read you another thing I shared with my young friend. I said, if you were truly a believer before, you were still a child of God, a Christian. Read all of John 10, especially 27 to 29. Our faith does not depend on how we feel about God at any one point, but on the fact of whether we possess it or not. So I encouraged him to read in John 10, and of course we studied that here, but here's, here's what I directed him to where, where Jesus said I, in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's why we are safe, because we are guarded by Him, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And that means Satan cannot snatch a true believer out of the Father's hand or out of Jesus' hand. And that means we can't even snatch ourselves. That's why we're safe. Not because of us, but because of Him. And then we understand, verse 15, we need protection from the world we live in. I do not ask you, verse 15, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So while we're called to live in this world, but not be of it, Jesus prays. He wants us here in the world. There's our purpose of sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross for his people. But we need protection from the evil one. And so he prays to the Father for that. He says, while I was here, I protected them. But I'm going to be with you. Protect them. And he will. He is. And then we see what we learn about God. Verse 6, Jesus revealed the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus revealed the Father. 
Secondly, we learn his care is efficient or effective. We already um, looked earlier at verse 12 that he kept, um, he kept them, he's guarded them, and so on. We saw from John 10, no one can snatch them out of the hand. But there's another thing it says in verse 13. And that is about his joy. His joy is a communicable attribute. Now let's do a little, little theology here. Um, he says this, verse 13, But now I'm coming to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, notice, he's not saying, I'm praying that they'll get happy or that they'll be joyful. He is asking the Father for his joy to be fulfilled in them. So when we talk about the attributes of God, we, there, there are, are two kinds of attributes. There are... Um, Communicable and uh, incommunicable attributes, okay? And they're just what they say. Incommunicable um, means that it's something that God possesses that we can't really possess. We can know things, but we can't know everything. So his omniscience is something that is incommunicable, to us. Something that's communicable, you should know this time of year what it means for something to be communicable. Because most of you have had some kind of sickness communicated to you during this time. And that's what it is. It's something that can be shared. Now in this sense, when it's God's attribute, it's a positive for it to be communicable. And that's what joy is. Again, from Vision 2022, here's what we say. We believe that joy should characterize everything we do here. Joy denotes the deep and abiding joy of which Paul speaks, as well as the appropriate and genuine outward joy arising naturally from our relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's what we're saying that joy isn't just this outward happiness, and it's not all about laughter. That's part of it. But there is a deep, what I've, we've called here a deep and abiding joy that Paul talks about in the epistle of joy that he wrote when he was imprisoned. It wasn't about his circumstances. It was about his joy in Christ. And that's what Jesus is, is saying, Father, I, I want them to have some of this joy that you've given to me. Now, think about when he said that. He said that almost literally in the shadow of the cross. He was moving ever so quickly toward the cross. It wasn't an outward laughing kind of happiness. But even at that point, 
he had a deep abiding joy because of his relationship with the Father. And he said, that's what I want for my disciples. And then finally, the word is essential for our spiritual health. <clears throat> he says it a number of different uh, ways. I've given them your word, verse 14 and uh, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. For their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now there are multiple things that will contribute to your growth in Christ. Prayer. Corporate worship. Obedient living. All those are good. All those are important. They're all essential. But I want to make you one promise. Without the word of God, you will not grow. It's a negative promise. Without his word, it is impossible to grow in him. And there's several levels of that. One is, one is right now, sermons from God's word. Another would be more in-depth in studies like in Sunday school and Bible studies with others, community groups. And then another would be personal reading and study. And you really need all three. What we're doing right now, it, it, it's better than nothing, but it's not sufficient. That last one, personal reading and study, I know that's a hard one. And I want to tell you, it's, it's a challenge for me. And studying my Bible is part of my job. I could put that on my job description, and the session would say, yeah, that's part of what we pay you to do. But, but here's, here's the first time I was shocked about how hard it can be. When I was in seminary, there was a, a, a study done among evangelical seminary students. And in that study, they asked many, many questions, and one of them was, do you engage in personal Bible study? And it defined it as not having to do with a class or preparing for a lesson or or something like that. You want to know what the percentage was that, that did that? 10%. One out of 10. Now these, these were future pastors, many of them. And it was a shock to me. But then I got to thinking about even my own habits that, that yeah, I was using the Bible all the time. Every day, I mean, I had it in my backpack all the time and I was always using it, but most of it was for classes or preparing for Bible studies or sermons or something like that. And the next level, I think, is a key. And that is when you're doing it for this reason, to get to know Jesus better. Not for any other thing you're doing, 
but to get to know Jesus and the Father better. That's when growth will come. You've been given this personal, uh, what do we call that? The reading challenge, the, the 2019 reading challenge. And you know what? For many years, I, I used the one-year Bible. I loved that. I read it every year, went all the way through the Bible. And last year, when we started the reading challenge, our CE team and, and Jason um, uh, challenged us. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. Because I want to be reading what many others in the church were doing. And here's what I found out about it. Is I found it to be um, edifying, realistic, doable. In other words, it was, it was an amount that, that I could do. And it had, for the most part, although it applies to our lives, for the most part it had nothing to do with other things I was preparing for. So I want to encourage you in that if you didn't do it last year. This, this week is when we're, we're starting with it. You know, for, the, for anyone wanting to grow and for those who are struggling, struggling like my young friend, we often talk about the ordinary means of grace. How does God grow His people? And there are three three areas. One is the Word that we've just talked about. The second is prayer. And the third is the sacrament. The second one we have an opportunity to gather tonight in the great hall with others. And even if you aren't comfortable praying out loud, you can come and pray along with those who are. And you'll be edified. And then there's the sacrament. God uses this in the life of his children to grow them. Let's pray. Lord, we we do pray that you would help us in this. Everyone in this room needs to grow either to know you or to know you better. Every one of us. Will you give us that desire and the grace that we need to do it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.